0: Welcome to Jury Duty, I'm your host, Chris Terracone. Season 8 of Jury Duty explores the trial of Alex Murdoch, a member of one of the most powerful families in South Carolina, who is accused of murdering his son, Paul, and his wife, Maggie, with the purpose of covering up a multitude of alleged crimes, including fraud and homicide. In our last episode, we concluded our coverage of the in-camera testimony of Michael Gunn, the principal of a firm that the defendant defrauded. In this installment, we continue our look at the in-camera hearing over the admissibility of evidence regarding the defendant's financial crimes with our review of the testimony of Chris Wilson, a fellow lawyer and close friend of Alex Murdoch's. That's all coming up right after the break. Hey Dave. Yeah Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear, and t-shirts are super soft. It is the late afternoon of February 2nd, 2023, day 7 of the trial of Alex Murdoch. At the end of our last episode, Michael Gunn concluded his testimony that Alex Murdoch created a fake company with the same name as Gunn's company, in order to fraudulently divert client funds from his law firm for his own personal use. We begin today's installment with a prosecution calling Chris Wilson to the stand. Wilson is a longtime close friend and law colleague of the defendant's. Wilson is in his mid-fifties. He sports short graying hair and wears a gray suit, white shirt, and purple tie with a diamond pattern. Prosecutor Creighton Waters begins his examination of the witness by asking a few questions about Wilson's experience as an attorney.
1: I'm not gonna go into uh, a lot, everything that I might cover with you in a trial, but I do wanna focus on particularly the Ferris case. You know which one I'm referring to? Sure. First of all, though, uh, just very quickly, uh, you're a lawyer, is that correct?
2: I am, since 1998.
1: 1998, and describe very quickly your practice for the record. Actually,
2: since 1995. I've had a home practice since 1998. In the last 15 years, I've done primarily personal injury work, um, automobile accidents, people that are injured at work, I practice type cases, those things. Where's your home base? My only office is in Bamberg.
1: Do a lot of clients work? That's all I do anymore.
0: For the last 15 years, that's really all I do. Prosecutor Waters next turns to the personal relationship between Wilson and Alex Murdoch. And
1: uh, do you know the defendant? I do. And when did you get to know the defendant? I've known Alex since
2: we were in high school, Bamberg and Hampton. I grew up in Bamberg, and they're only about 30 miles apart, and so um, I knew of Alex and had been around him some growing up. We had some mutual friends. I was a lot closer to some other guys in Hampton that I grew up playing golf and things like that with, but I would cross paths with Alec. Played on the same baseball team one summer, I think like our seniors in high school or somewhere around high school age. Didn't really keep in touch with him or or cross paths with him until we ended up going to law school. And we uh, started law school together at Carolina, three years there together at law school and lived together part of the time. Did y'all become friends?
1: We did. Become close friends?
2: Very close. Best friends? Um, He was one of my best friends, yes. And I thought, you know, he was, and I thought he felt the same way about me. feel that way now? I don't know how I feel now, Mr. Waters.
0: As he answers, Mr. Wilson appears to choke up. The defendant, as he watches Wilson testify, shakes backward and forward, as if he, too, is nearly overcome with emotion. Waters next moves on to asking Mr. Wilson about the evolution of his professional relationship with Alex Murdoch.
1: Over the years, as you develop that... uh, close friendship with Ellick. Did y'all also have a professional relationship as well?
2: We did. When I finished law school I went to work in Greenville for a judge for a year. Alec um, went to Buford uh, to work with a law firm there. So we didn't, we see each other but it was more socially then. Uh, when I moved back to Bamberg to start practicing where I'd grown up and he moved back to Hampton a couple years later we started uh, doing a little bit more work together and we've done cases together really since 1998. I opened up my own firm in 98. I think that's about the same time he had moved back to his firm. And it was a bigger firm with resources that I didn't have starting out on my own. And so we started working cases together and worked a lot together.
1: Uh, tell me, uh, for the record, uh, how that works when you, you're in a different firm than the firm he was in, correct? Yes. And so when two lawyers from different firms or three, however many it is, share a case How do you handle uh, the payment of the fees if, if there's a successful recovery?
2: Well, it really all depends on the agreement that's reached up front between the lawyers and with the client's consent. But generally, all the cases that I work with his firm and, and with most firms I do business with, it's a it's a 50-50 split on the fee recovery or at least an equal split. Maybe if there are more than two lawyers, it'll be an equal split across the board. But generally, it was just my firm and his firm with a 50-50 split um, on attorney's fees recovered. And each firm recovers whatever cost they've advanced in the case. And sometimes his firm would advance more of the cost because... You know, they had a larger number of lawyers bringing in more money than I was and could afford to handle some of the bigger costs, but it's kind of whoever got the bill, paid the bill, and then we reimbursed at the end whoever had advanced the cost. Client signs off on all of that.
1: Who handles the ultimate disbursement? How does that work? Whichever lawyer receives the
2: settlement checks or the checks to pay whatever verdict or judgment that was received. I can't say in every single case with Alex Firm, but in having gone back through my files and audited my paperwork, it looks like in almost every single case that we worked together, um, I, my, the, the disbursement, the money would come through to me and I would handle the disbursement. They were generally clients where I would associate his firm, they were my clients, they were people that had come to me and um, I wanted them to, uh, you know, frankly, know that I was the person that took care of them and if they needed anything that so they could come back and so I wanted to be the person handling that part of it also. Alright,
1: so if the money comes through you, then just mechanically, how do you go about Paying Alec in a case where y'all are splitting a fee or
2: paying the firm? Money comes um, in, client has to come sign the check or whatever it is along with my firm if it's made payable. It's generally made payable to Wilson Law Group or Wilson Law Firm and the client. Um, client comes in and signs the check. Uh, I endorse the check, we deposit that into my trust account. If it has to sit under uh, Supreme Court rules, sometimes it has to sit for 10 days or more. Um, Some smaller checks don't. Once it's uh, been in the account long enough to be uh, able to be dispersed pursuant to our rules, then my bookkeeper does the checks that I instruct her to do, and and I sign the checks to make disbursements. If they're checks to another law firm, then the money is dispersed um, to that firm.
1: In the course of litigation, are there typically costs and expenses that accrue during the course of that litigation? Almost always. And do those typically we get paid out of whatever settlement is reaching, assuming a successful result? They do. Um, all of my fee agreements and
2: every lawyer I've ever worked with have a provision in there that the client understands that the fees are advanced by the lawyer, but upon recovery they're reimbursed or recovered by the, by the lawyer.
1: In a particular case where you're splitting a fee and there were, in fact, costs and expenses associated with a successful recovery, are those issued in a separate check typically or a check together?
2: Uh, When I first started, I think um, my firm was doing cost and fees, not just for other firms, but cost and fees that were payable to my firm in the same check. Um, But, I mean, 10-plus years ago, if not longer, we started doing separate checks just to make the accounting and keeping up with it easier. So uh, generally, it's a, a fee check and a separate cost check. And in
1: 2020 and 2021, were you issuing those separate checks? Yes, Very quickly, without getting into the details, uh, did you have a a case in Allendale where you split it with Alec uh, in the early part of 2021? Yes, sir. All right. And ultimately, was there a recovery in that case? There was. And? It was actually three cases,
2: but they were similar factually, and so we treated them as one case, but it was three three separate plaintiffs, three separate cases.
1: And ultimately, did you, your office, disperse the fees and the uh, expense check to PMPED? On all three cases, yes, sir. And those checks were made out to what?
2: Um, all three of the fee checks were made payable to, I don't know if we used the acronym PMPED or if we actually spelled out Peters, Murdoch, um, Parker, Dietrich, and Ellsworth, but PMPED.
1: Generally, except for the Ferris case, which we'll talk about in a minute, sure. when you had those uh, fee splits uh, with Alec, were the checks made out to PMPED? Yes, and they sir. Were signed by you?
2: Yes, sir. And I'm the only person who can sign checks in my office. So. Well, now. I had a partner at one time, but now I'm the only person that can sign checks.
0: It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves Prosecutor Creighton Waters next asks Mr. Wilson about the matter that has been previously referred to as the Ferris case, and how Murdoch became involved in that litigation.
1: Did you uh, have a case involving Mack Trucks that involved Ella? Yes sir. And can you describe to the court uh, how you ended up getting that case and how you ultimately uh, associated Alec in that case.
2: Please. Sure, and you know, I've heard it referred to as the Ferris case, the Mack Trucks and Ferris. I'd rather refer to it as the Mack Trucks case. Uh, another lawyer had contacted me about a case that he was working on, felt like he had a, a wreck involving a tractor-trailer and an automobile in which a gentleman was injured. I believe he had already filed suit against the tractor-trailer company and its driver and, and maybe another party Started looking at the case for and with him. It involved a drive shaft that had fallen out of a a Mack um, truck into the interstate and this gentleman had and and a number of other cars had hit that drive shaft and uh, In looking at it and doing a little bit of research um, I and he together realized that there very likely could be a products liability case involving a defect with the drive shaft of the truck or something like that so So I reached out to Alec and asked him if he could get involved in the case or would get involved in the case. And that's what his firm specialized in a lot was products liability cases. And we were pushing some deadlines to bring in all the parties that we needed to. And so I reached
1: out pretty quickly because I knew we needed some help. And did he agree to be part of that case? He did. Uh, As that litigation proceeded, did y'all have, as is typical, some discovery uh, hearings, discovery motions and that sort of thing? Well, we had a number
2: of them. I don't remember how many. I don't remember how many, but we had a number of different motions and discovery that went back and forth, documents being exchanged, things like that.
1: All right. And did that ultimately set up uh, the prospect of a trial in that case?
2: It did, but it was um, unusual. It wasn't a jury trial like is normally done in in um, personal injury cases. It was a non-jury trial tried before a circuit court judge with an admission of liability. We waived punitive damages, and there was an agreement between the parties that neither party would appeal the result.
1: And in a uh, case, uh, plaintiff's case, civil plaintiff's case like this, if there's a large recovery, let's say, for the plaintiff, and the defendant decides to appeal, does that typically delay payment of the, the recovery until that appeal is heard and resolved?
2: I mean, it can. You never know how long an appeal is going to take, and so if the losing party, the defendant, the company that you're suing, whoever it might be, um, decides to appeal, they can tie the, the verdict up for a while. If you win the appeal, you're going to recover costs and interest, so, you know, that's the remedy, but it can tie up money um, for people that are injured that need that money.
1: Did y'all ultimately try that case in a bench trial?
2: We did. Um, what we had- was it? Excuse me? What county? It was in Richland County, Columbia.
1: And when did y'all try that case? Uh,
2: the first part of January of 2021.
1: Who did the closing argument in that case? Alec. There had been a concession of liability, so the amount was really what was in question. Is that is that correct? Yes, sir. And yeah. how many plans did you have?
2: There were actually two cases, and When we call it Ferris or the Mack Trucks case throughout all of this, but there were actually two cases, the gentleman that was injured and then his wife, um, We brought a loss of consortium claim for her for the loss of of companion services that she had lost from him. And just not to get too detailed, Mr. Ward, her case had gone into default. In other words, Mack trucks hadn't answered the papers like they should have, and so they were in a really bad position on that case. And in the gentleman's case, they had answered, but we were discovering some things. Um, When we were doing some discovery, it was clear they didn't want us looking much, much further. And so that's why this deal... Everybody agreed to a a non-jury trial without appeal with a waiver of punitive damages and an admission of liability was done. And we were in COVID, and it was going to take us a while to get a trial. So it worked out well for both parties, and the result worked out well for us.
1: And that's often how it goes in litigation. Both sides kind of decide what's best, and sometimes they can have a meeting of their minds. Yes, sir. All right. Was there ultimately uh, a verdict by the judge in that case?
2: Well two verdicts since two cases, yes, sir. And what were those amounts? I believe it was four million for the injured man and one point
0: five for the wife. I remember it was five point five combined, but I think it was four and one point five. Creighton Waters next moves on to asking Mr. Wilson about the agreement among the attorneys who worked on the case regarding how the legal fees were to be distributed. All
1: right. And so, how did the fees break down to the best of your recollection that were going to be split among the three lawyers involved? Remember how much Alex shared the fees? Seven hundred ninety-two thousand. Okay, and you There was a, a larger split
2: to the attorney that initiated the case, but I believe Alec was seven ninety-two. The math didn't work out perfectly. I was seven ninety-one, and the other attorney was higher than that, but I don't remember the exact numbers. In
1: recognition of his origination. Yes, sir in march of 2021 did you ultimately receive the monies and prepare for disbursement uh yes sir. i
2: believe they came uh, in late february because we dispersed in march and i i had to wait at least 10 days part of the money came by a wire which would have been kind of immediately available and accessible but it was a smaller portion of the money the larger portion came in a check and because it was such a sizable amount i waited um maybe 12 or 15 15 days or so i, I didn't disperse on the 10th day
1: and did you uh, have a conversation with the defendant about dispersing those fees?
2: I had a conversation with, with Alec and with the other attorney I worked on the case with when the fees and were ready to be dispersed.
1: What about your specific conversation with Alec? Did he uh, make any requests of you or have any discussion with you about how to handle his $792,000 share of the fee? He did. Um, can you tell me about that conversation, please.
2: When I contacted him and told him we were getting ready to disperse and we would have checks ready, Um, He indicated to me that he was looking to um, place his fees in an annuity. He called it like a structure. I've never done one of those before, so I didn't really know how it worked. I've never done structure for my fees myself. I've structured client money, but not my fees. He indicated he was looking to do a structure by putting the monies into annuities and that the checks needed to be made payable directly to him, that he had already cleared it with his firm, that the monies were going to be put on the books and accounted for, and, um, and he would be credited as having received those monies.
1: Based on his representations to you that he had cleared it with his firm, did you agree to do something different and make the checks directly out to him?
0: I did. Prosecutor Waters presents a document to Mr. Wilson and asks, What is that? So this is
2: the initial check that was written per Alex's instructions directly to him on the gentleman's case for fees made payable to Richard Alexander Murdoch, Esquire, for $600,000. This voided.
1: Why was it voided?
2: Because he uh, instructed me afterwards, and I don't remember if it was in the same conversation or shortly thereafter, that the um, checks on that case needed to be made in two separate check payments. He was doing two separate annuities.
0: Prosecutor Waters next hands Mr. Wilson a series of documents. All right,
1: I'll show you Mr. Martin, 346 for the SIM camera hearing, and see if you recognize these
0: documents.
2: Yes, sir. The first page is the check payable directly to Richard Alexander Murdock, Esquire um, for $192,000, and that is on the loss of consortium case for the wife. And on the bottom, just like that $600,000 check that was voided, it indicates it was for fees. I guess the other writing on here is maybe from the uh, I'm just soft, focused, the focused on the checks. It's something to do patient. with the way we recovered the checks. Right. Uh, the back page looks like an endorsement. Pay Bank of America, deposit only, looks like a signature Bank of America.
1: And again, just I'm just asking you to, jump to see if you recognize well, those checks. Yes, I do. Yeah. I recognize all all right, them. Tell me the second check, this so, is the amount and what that's for.
2: The second check is for $225,000 payable directly to Richard Alexander Murdoch Esquire. It indicates on the bottom that it's for fees. This would be part of the rewrite of that $600,000 check that had been voided. All right. And then the third check is $375,000 check payable directly to Richard Alexander, Murdoch, Esquire, and it indicates fees, and that would be the remainder, the remainder of the rewrite of that $600,000 check initially written that was voided. All
1: right. And those second two were rewritten why?
2: At um, Alex's request, he had indicated that he was putting the money into two different vehicles or annuities um, and needed the checks written that way.
1: What did you uh, do with those checks after you uh, the three checks after you had fi- finally cut
2: them um, obviously I signed them and at some point in time I think Alex sent somebody up to my office to pick them up I don't think I delivered them oftentimes I put checks in the mail sometimes when they're larger I either offer to have them picked up or delivered and I think he had somebody come pick
1: those up from my office like a law firm runner or somebody like that
0: something like that yes sir I don't even think I was in the office when they picked it up Creighton Waters steps back from the details of these transactions and asks the witness about whether he found Alex Murdoch's requests at all suspicious at the time the defendant made them.
1: You've known Alex for a long time, right?
0: Since, mid, uh, yeah, since the mid-80s, earlier, the yeah, mid-80s. Yes, Worked sir.
1: with him for a long time?
0: Many
2: times.
1: Did uh, his explanation to you about what he was going to do, did that raise any suspicions with you? To your friend that you'd known for such a long time?
2: No, sir. It was it was different, but it didn't raise any red flags or suspicions to me that anything wrong was going on. Because
1: you trusted your friend, right? Very much. What was your perception of Alex's general wealth and and success? He
2: made a lot more money than I did. Always seemed to do well in his practice. All I ever heard is that he was one of the biggest producers in the firm. He, you know, it's his family's name on the firm, but they acted like it was it was his name on the firm too. Um, he and I handled big cases together. When I talked to the partners and other members of that firm, they were talking about big cases that they were handling with him. Felt like he did really well. We never got into direct discussions about the amount of money he made or the amount of money I, I made. We talked about, you know, sometimes business and sometimes money and sometimes things. But I never. I uh, always thought he made a lot of money.
1: Is that part of the reason why your suspicions weren't uh, didn't get uh, didn't arise when you were asked to do this uh, this request by Alec?
2: I, I guess so not not so much as just i I'd, I'd never had any dealings with him that I had any reason to distrust what he was telling me. I mean he was a partner in that firm he had the authority as far as I knew to make decisions if he'd have wanted to reduce the fee and take less and it was payable to the firm, I wouldn't have questioned that. I didn't feel like he had to have his authority his
0: uh, uh, partner's approvals to make those type decisions And with that, we bring to a close this episode of jury duty, the trial of Alex Murdoch. Please join us on our next installment as we conclude our look at the in-camera testimony of Chris Wilson. Also, check out the Crime Story podcast, Night Raid, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you would like to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. You can find more information about this trial on our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page or at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created and produced by Carrie Antholis. It was co-produced, written, and edited by yours truly, Chris Terracone. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty.